0: Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's Podcast. This is episode 20 and we've shuffled the order a little bit. You were probably expecting Burns Part 2 which will be coming next. But we've decided to bring this particular podcast forward... Because there's a conference happening on October the 9th in Scotland um, on the very topic that we're about to discuss today and hosted by our very special guest today. It will be the first of its kind and we wanted to give you enough notice so that you can make any necessary arrangements you may need to attend that conference because it promises to be absolutely incredible. And we will discuss more about it towards the end of the episode speaking of conferences we're also hosting our own incredible sepsis meeting the international sepsis symposium in glasgow on september the 27th 12 incredible world experts delivering short impactful talks no more than 15 minutes each and some of them are even six minutes so packed full of incredible information for practicing clinicians and again we'll put some information in our show notes on how to attend that So back to the podcast, we have a very, very special guest today. This is Dr. Catherine Calderwood, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Scotland. And in 2016, she wrote a document called Realistic Medicine, which at its core was asking doctors to take a fresh look at their practice and consider if patients are being harmed by unnecessary treatments, But more than that, it was asking doctors to consider could they be more thoughtful, less wasteful, more considerate of patients' wishes, whilst also valuing each other, sharing knowledge and being more innovative. And it really struck a chord with all health professionals. And not just in Scotland, it really had global impact. So we're absolutely delighted to have the opportunity to sit with Dr. Calderwood and discuss more about how we could practice more realistic medicine. So let's just jump right in.
1: Hello, I'm Catherine Calderwood. I'm an obstetrician by background, but I'm also the Chief Medical
0: Officer for Scotland. And do you mind if I just quickly ask you to describe what the Chief Medical Officer of Scotland does? Because we have some overseas listeners who may not be familiar with the term. Do you mind just letting them know what exactly your role is? Well,
1: my... 12-year-old son, I think, probably summed it up. My children understood what an obstetrician did, so mummy went to work to help ladies when they were having babies. But when I got my new job, my son said to me, mum, this new job of yours, it's all about keeping people healthy, isn't it? Which I think is, is a good summary. He did then say, um, you're not going to ban sweets, though, are you?
0: <laughs>
1: and, and maybe, he has a point, actually.
0: Depends how naughty a boy is.
1: <laughs> so the, the job is as the as the most senior medical advisor to the Scottish government. What's really interesting, though, is I am independent of government. So all civil servants sign a code of practice to work for the government of the day. But I am not tied to a political party. So I am one of very few civil servants that if I disagree with the government of the day, I will not lose my job because my job is actually to advise about the health of the Scottish people rather than it
0: being primarily about being loyal to one government or another. And am I right in thinking you were the first female chief medical officer? That's right, yes. And you're still in practice. Is that also something that's unusual? that's very unusual and something I'm very proud of.
1: I still go to my antenatal clinic in the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh when I can get to it and it is a real pleasure because of course I know the staff and we have um, all the memories of the past but also it's really nice to see pregnant women and just do the job that I started out doing.
0: So we're here today to talk about realistic medicine, if that's okay. So this is something that's just had an enormous impact. Um, now, just for, for our listeners, it, it would be traditional for the chief medical officer to write a report on the health of the nation. Isn't that right? And you kind of decided to write a letter to the doctors of Scotland. Do you Do you mind just describing, very broadly speaking, what realistic medicine And I think in a, in a little while we're going to kind of go into it in a wee bit more detail. But what is it in a nutshell?
1: I was really keen to hear from the doctors primarily when I started my job so I went around the country and and spoke to people and I heard from them that they were stressed that they were overworked and that to some extent they were not practicing medicine in the same way as they thought they would when they left medical school now this isn't confined to doctors of course but it was as the chief medical officer that's where I started and they really were unhappy because they felt that at times they were doing too much medicine. They were intervening and they weren't always able to have the um, conversations with the patients where actually what the person wanted was the priority. So that's really where realistic medicine started. And and being realistic, as, as anyone knows from a dictionary de- definition, is, is having a, a true and and accurate reflection of what, could happen what an outcome might be and so of course I was hearing that the doctors were feeling that they were not able to necessarily practice medicine in the best interests of the person that was in front of them and of course one size doesn't fit all for treatments so the uh, examples that I have and I have many funny stories and and some uh, very serious stories but I met a man in Ayrshire and he had had a knee replacement and he he was brought out to meet me because, because of his operation and I was asking him about his new knee. He really wasn't very happy and I could tell from his demeanour he wasn't very um, pleased with, with all of what surrounded him. So I asked him whether he was in pain or couldn't walk and he said, well actually doctor, I really like to stand on my doorstep and talk to my neighbour. And my knee was sore. So I asked them for a handrail so I could chat to my neighbour and they gave me a bloody knee replacement. <laughs> and I still can't stand on my doorstep because I and still, still need not have a rail.
0: <laughs> Bless him.
1: So, th- so that sort of what what was important for him turned into and i'm quite sure he had pain in his knee he must have had osteoarthritis and what the orthopedic surgeons did quite rightly was gave him a knee replacement but nobody went back to what his original request
0: had been that's interesting isn't it so have you you must have been surprised by the impact of this manifesto would that be fair to say oh it's yes it's extraordinary i i i did a straw poll of my friends about
1: how many had read a chief medical officer's report before I started and, and I, 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 I'll tell you that it wasn't overwhelming the response.
0: Don't ask me how many I've read.
1: Yeah quite. <laughs> so this is something different I, I didn't want to produce something that was, was would of course cost a lot of money be very much hard work to produce that was just sitting on shelves or, or not downloaded so this is fantastic they What it seems to have done is really just brought people back to how they really want to practice medicine. I don't think I've invented something new. I think that this is in all of those healthcare professionals. And as I've said, it's way beyond the doctors because I've been written to by nurses, midwives, paramedics, all types of healthcare professionals, physiotherapists saying this is also how we want to speak to patients. We want to do what is realistic?
0: I, th- I think that's it. It struck a chord because a lot of health professionals probably believed it and thought it. And and it was just so revolutionary to hear someone in your position to put it on paper like that. I think that's why it connected with everyone, wasn't it? Okay, Dr. Colward, if you don't mind, we were going to go through... You, you have, if, if my understanding of this is correct, you've got six broad tenets of this kind of manifesto. Um, and if you don't mind, I was going to go through each of them individually... Find out from you exactly what you meant by them and and maybe think, I mean, our audience is probably mostly emergency medicine, critical care. Maybe put a little bit of a slant on it, how we could maybe implement this um, approach or these approaches into our practice. Would that be okay? So the first one I have here is building a personalised approach to care. What did you mean by that and, and how do you see that, you know, how do you see us applying that in emergency medicine?
1: I suppose a lot of where these have come from is, is from my own practice. So from, from taking the, the, the pregnant woman in my own clinic or in labour ward and realising that she is not the same as the person in the next room, that personalised care is about finding out where that person is coming from, what they are wanting from their treatment, and understanding, I suppose, a little bit about their background difficult in an acute emergency situation but you will have people who um, are there frequently who are there when it isn't an accident or an emergency and sometimes that uh, is a crisis of a different type and I'm sure that that your listeners will be able to think of people that actually shouldn't be in their departments but are there because there isn't somewhere else to turn to and perhaps that personalized approach to care would find them a different route.
0: One of the things I highlighted when I was reading the manifesto was aim to provide what you would want for yourself or your family. Do you think that's a good way to sum
1: up so so that has been the theme of lots and lots of letters I have received. People writing to me telling me that they have never written this down before because they almost feel, as healthcare professionals, they feel guilty about not perhaps supporting their own colleagues, people with examples of their elderly parents having an intervention or having treatment and them thinking, I I don't know why that doctor is doing that, and actually finding it very difficult to prevent intervention or prevent a new drug being started when somebody is is obviously approaching perhaps the end of their life or or is having yet another deterioration. And those doctors feel bad, I think, that they they are not wanting to undermine their colleagues, but they also realise that that person who's treating their elderly relative hasn't actually explored what that person wants. And they have also commented that if they are feeling as trained professionals, that they can't really get the treatment uh, right for their relative. Well, what hope then has somebody without that sort of background? And that can be in the emergency situation at three in the morning with somebody with a chronic condition who has a crisis of
0: some sort. Okay, so number two I have here is shared decision making. So how can we do that better in emergency medicine, do you think?
1: The, the full information, I think, is really important. So we've looked at a lot of literature on this. If we take, now these are American doctors, but we look at um, their attitudes to um, CPR, for example. Well, 95% of doctors surveyed would, would not agree to have CPR if they were at the end of life. In a, in a situation where they'd had a terminal diagnosis. There would be um, 88% of doctors who wouldn't agree to have hemodialysis, and 67% of doctors with a, a an end-of-life diagnosis would not agree to be admitted to intensive care. So I wonder why we do something that we wouldn't choose for ourselves, and we know from many studies that what happens when doctors are describing benefits and risks to patients, that they overemphasize the benefits and very, very starkly underestimate or fail to report the downsides. And so I I give an anecdotal story of of a maxillofacial surgery case where the surgeon, his assistant, the anaesthetist and the theatre staff, or standing over somebody and saying, I would never have this done, would you? So why do we know enough about certain operations or procedures or being admitted to intensive care? Which is of course what lots of people in emergency departments end up facilitating. Why would we as as doctors with more knowledge decide that that isn't what we wanted and therefore is is some of that conversation about articulating why perhaps towards the end of your life maybe there's a different route and actually that intensive care referral doesn't make for the right decision and that shared decision needs to be made with that person but they they don't have the facts and we do.
0: It nearly goes back to the what would you do for yourself or your family again doesn't it? Nearly having that approach I guess with the the CPR thing it's also, it's a difficult conversation to have in that moment isn't it? There's lots of times in my experience you, you you would automatically have that feeling but then is it the right time to articulate that with the family in that, the heat of the moment when the emotions are high, it's yeah, it's, it makes those decisions quite tricky in a critical care environment doesn't it?
1: And and I would answer you by saying that I challenge the, the audiences of healthcare professionals that I speak to and I, I say, so do you know what your own parents' wishes are? Does your family know what yours are? And of course life changes and, and people are well at the moment but actually I was very surprised at how few palliative care doctors have made a will and so public awareness yes but actually are we even talking about this within our own
0: around the kitchen families? table yeah because mm-hmm. if
1: we can't do it then then what what, How what can we expect, expect the, rest of the public, of the public?
0: Mm-hmm. don't do as i do do as i say mm-hmm. type of thing
1: um And that I do agree, though, that that is not necessarily the right time. I don't think I'm saying somebody comes in in cardiac arrest and you suddenly have to have a shared decision making conversation before you start to do CPR. But perhaps it's that conversation that started either after that event or if there are people that are coming in deteriorating, not at that stage. And it's not an easy conversation to have.
0: I was thinking about the shared decision making um, thing and there seems to be a certain drive to involve the patients more in the decision making process which I totally get but there are times and I'm just thinking of my own experience I was just thinking recently I, I had some financial advice I needed and I went to a financial advisor and they gave me lots of options and it was a topic I didn't understand and all I wanted and what I did ask in the end was please if you were in my position what would you do? And I wanted them to make the decision. And I wonder, do all patients want to be involved in the decision? Are some patients, literally, they've come, they want the doctor to do what the doctor, with all their experience, thinks is the right thing to do. Would it always be, or, or do you have to offer it to the patient, get a sense of what the patient wants? They may not want to be involved in the decision. They may want to be or do you think it's always best to try and involve them? I don't know. Does that make sense? And and I think that's something that is, is often
1: said. So so we're coming across people with very differing desires from their medical care. Some people will have gone to Dr. Google and will be diagnosing themselves and in fact, often in fact quite correctly educating the the person that they've come to see because they've looked it up and read about it very recently, but they, there are others who would want the decision made. I think, whatever the length of time available, some form of conversation about what they're where they're coming from, so that will not be as easy and in a very acute situation, but even finding out what somebody's like at home usually, so that we have a. a a, a realistic conversation about what's likely to be an outcome. So the, the, the every eighty-year-old is not the same in the similar way to every twenty-five-year-old. Every person with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is is not the same. Cardiac failure. So we we have a I think an opportunity even in a few sentences to try to glean information about them as an individual. And that's really all that could be expected, particularly in an emergency. I think that also makes our job fascinating because no two people are the same, are they?
0: Um, one of the things I picked out on that little uh, section was a kind of communication skills. Have you any thoughts on how we better teach communication skills to health professionals? So this is very,
1: very important, I... Uh, have become involved with, a, with a, an international group, um, which is the, the communications in healthcare each, they're called. And I really thought how funny it is that there's some international group of experts that seem to think that they know all about communication in healthcare. But actually, when you get into some of the resources they provide and the ethos they have... What we realise is that there's an assumption that people who've gone to medical school or been at nursing college or trained with people to become a healthcare professional, they must be good at communicating. And of course, that's not the case. And and I'll let your listeners think of some good communicators and then some people that they would think, if I turned up with my wife, child, partner, I would really not want to see that doctor. The sort of people that you will will smile and and say brilliant at what they do, but I really wouldn't want something explained. Yeah, and that's a, therefore needs to be in our teaching, in, in training, needs to be examined, I would say. And I would also say that it's so vital a part of what we do that that those who are not good at it, it it's as it's as important to me as those technical skills. You, you could have a, a row of people doing in my world cesarean sections who didn't need to consent the patients or talk to the, the women and their families about what was happening to them. But that, that isn't what we do. We have interaction with people. And therefore, if, if you are not good at that, you, you can be taught it. And that, I think, is as important. And the medical schools are now um, taking that challenge on.
0: So point number three was understanding and managing risk. What, can you just summarise that for us? What, what did you mean by that and what would be the main take-home points you would want us to, to think about? When I spoke to
1: people who were under stress, I, I read quite a lot around what happens to our decision-making when we're under pressure. And this will be very apparent to those working in the emergency department, working in intensive care. And what actually happens is that you become very risk averse when you're under pressure. So you take very, very conservative decisions. And that may mean that you over intervene and that you overemphasize the need to do something. So we are not providing the optimum care so if, if if people are are overworked and overstretched, they actually will contribute to less good outcomes potentially by by behaving in a very very risk averse way now um, those of us who who are then in more senior positions know that actually the skill is in absorbing some of those difficult decisions and in in knowing how to support taking risk and What I wanted to explore was how do we support our staff so that they do not feel concerned about um, those risky situations
0: and do something that actually contributes to, to poorer outcomes. So one of the things that I've noticed is one of the major talking points in emergency medicine is just the stress of work life and the increasing volume and, and the decreasing staff or, or increasing staff problems, I should say. Um, how do you manage the stress of your staff? How do you look after your staff members in your department and, and how could we maybe apply some of that? How, how, how can we, I guess, look after each other in emergency medicine and try to ease some of that stress? I think understanding the stress
1: points is very important. Is it, is it volume? Is it the, the quick turnaround? Is it the, the particular uh, acute situation where um, somebody's very seriously injured or very seriously ill? What, what is it to, to those individuals? Some people will thrive on lots of um, resource cases. Other people don't want to be there at all all night and so do 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 you do you know your staff is really my question i i think that you get the um, the best results the best atmosphere when people know each other well so do you, do you know what their aged people's children are i always start with that if they have children or have they where do they live what what are they like doing at the weekend Do you know and understand where people are coming from when they come to work? If they've got an ill elderly parent, then perhaps uh, being in a situation where they're looking after people like that ill relative is not the right thing for them on that shift. But but do you have an atmosphere where people would feel able and willing to say, actually, my my dad had a stroke last week. I don't want to be somewhere where that would be what I was doing doing in, in my job it's, it's too close to home so I think really knowing people and even if you don't get anywhere with the volume of work and the stressful situations if you as a boss know your staff they will appreciate that you've taken a personal
0: interest in them okay the fourth pillar I have is reducing harm and waste Do you mind just telling us a wee bit about that and what you meant and what we should be thinking about?
1: It's very interesting when I just get people to think about their own bit of the system, about where they are aware of waste, and they can always think of a great big long list. So the orthopaedic surgeons tell me about the the rules in theatre for having the incinerating bags so those are orange or yellow bags they have to be incinerated because they're full of um, contaminated waste and and I I hope I don't get in trouble with the hospital uh, infection control people by saying this but but the orthopaedic surgeons tell me that 80% of the waste is the big wrapping paper and packaging that comes around the instrument trays and yet we are incinerating that which has not been near a patient, it couldn't be contaminated because they're all opened before the patient is even uh, asleep. And it costs £45 to incinerate an orange bag and it costs £5 to put the black ordinary bin bags uh, in, the, in the usual rubbish. So the waste that anyone can just see around them is, it, it isn't necessarily questioned and isn't necessarily something that, in fact, staff who are working with it all the time could solve, but they're not asked.
0: Um, so number five is reducing unwarranted and unnecessary variation in practice and outcomes. What, what what did you notice, and what are you trying to to aim for? I suppose I was
1: surprised when I started to th- think about it as to the, the 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 differing lengths of stay in different units the differing practice amongst our own obstetric units across Scotland and and some of those individual differences where people are are acting very autonomously and actually they they then are are not only having a a knock-on effect on perhaps waiting times for example but they actually have an effect on people's outcomes and that really isn't the right thing for NHS Scotland that individual clinicians or an individual process or or unit can actually have a detrimental effect when we know that another unit has shorter lengths of stay fewer readmissions less infection rates why is it that some places can achieve something really good and other parts of Scotland in a in a small country why are we not the same so i take my own specialty the um, the rate of hysterectomy across the UK varies by a factor of fivefold, and the rate of induction of labour in Scotland varies by a factor of two. I don't know what the right level of induction of labour is necessarily, but it can't be both thirty-two percent and sixteen percent. It is there's something that that isn't. Uh, about about that variation in practice. And a lot of that is dictated by individual clinicians, not to do with patient characteristics.
0: And what do you think we can do
1: about that? So we're we're exposing it, first of all. We have an Atlas of Variation about to be published after the summer, first time in Scotland. They've had in England for about a decade. That's starting with very high-volume procedures of hip replacements, knee replacements, and cataract surgery. Those are just being started with because they're big numbers. And we have a rate of um, variation of knee replacement, for example, of sevenfold across Scotland. A rate of cataract procedures that varies by threefold. But nobody knows this because we don't publish the data. The data is is not new data, but we're publishing it as this atlas by by health board area and also by, by postcode. So some of that will be down to patient characteristics, but I cannot believe that Sevenfold
0: variation is the patient's fault. And what do you think you'll do from then? Do you think that will inspire people locally to look at themselves and compare them to others, and locally make differences, or do you think there'll be a, a, a broader kind of influence on the back of that? So there's a,
1: there's several things we're doing. First of all, let's just let people know this is they, these are your data. Why why would you be different than the hospital along the road. And people are appreciative, I think, of having that information. And those questions need to be asked. So maybe we're different because our case mix is different. But actually, maybe we're different because our, our processes are different, our, our um, lengths of stay are, are, are different, and we could do better. But we're also adding to that, as a variation, a whole teaching package around value-based health care. So value is value for money, to some extent it's a public service, but it's also value for the patient. So if we're doing stuff that isn't adding value to people, then why are we doing it? That would be harmful and wasteful. So we have um, a, a course which is open to all. We're going to train about 200 people a year across Scotland in value-based health care so that we will be examining some of this impact of variation we will be also ha- having uh, not only clinicians doing those uh, that course, but we also have finance uh, colleagues. So the first time we believe that clinicians and finance and, and financial officers within the NHS are getting together to explore actually what is value, what we should be doing and what we could stop, and also really are we are we getting value in our health care for the patient, but value for money too.
0: And I'll put a wee link in the show notes uh, to that course for anyone who's listening who'd like to find out a wee bit more about that. Okay, we're down to the last one. So we're, we're you're, you're wanting people to become improvers and innovators. Tell us a little bit about that and how you would encourage us to, to be more innovative.
1: I think I heard most from some of the Uh, most recent doctors when I went to visit one of the hospitals in in Lanarkshire and they were really keen to showcase lots of their quality improvement work but what I found listening to them was just exactly the right people to be improving the system so they were doing a simple piece of work with uh, making sure that that people's results got into the notes. Sounds pretty basic, but actually they were um, partly responsible for reducing length of stay on some of the care of the elderly wards because they looked at the system and, and saw that the phlebotomists were leaving the more difficult bloods for the junior doctor. The junior doctor didn't get round to them because they were very busy doing all sorts of other things. And so they filmed the process of ordering a request for a test right the way through to the results in the notes and they found that there were eight redundant steps on average in that process so they spoke to their phlebotomy colleagues they they put a, a system in to literally speed up that test to results in the notes and they reduced the length of stay on the ward because there were realization that a particular blood result had to be seen before someone would be discharged They would be being asked for the result and they would know that actually the blood had never left the patient. So another day went by where actually a a process done by the people who were really the experts at at how to improve it completely changed the way the the ward was working. I'm absolutely sure that there are many people listening who think, well, why why do we do this this way in our emergency department or why is that Um, process the way it is in intensive care. If I got the chance, I could think of a better way of doing it. And we don't ask people. We often have improvements introduced by people who are not actually doing the work
0: day to day. So thank you very much for that Uh, we run through. I I was just going to ask you just one wee broad question as well, just with regard to emergency medicine and your role as Chief Medical Officer. What do you believe are the biggest challenges faced by emergency medicine staff, and what are your priorities for us over the next few years?
1: I I think we recognise the volume of work that is coming through the emergency departments. It's not just the volume, it's the nature of that work. So unpredictable very significantly unwell people but also that they are are sometimes n- n- not in a state to interact in a helpful way they may be intoxicated they may be under the influence of drugs they may have come to the to your department as an absolutely last resort because other services have failed them so it's it's undoubtedly a very difficult and pressurized environment it's also somewhere where very split second decisions are happening all the time, and also where you are uh, regarded as the gatekeeper of the hospitals, um, inpatients, and 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 in reality, the flow through the hospital is far more dictated by what's happening in discharges and what's happening in the wards, and yet the emergency department gets the blame for having waiting times and uh, and and not uh, as if you're gatekeepers. Of Of the people coming through the door as if in some way you're bringing them in, and that that is something we're tackling all the time. I think the attitudes to to that emergency department as gatekeeper have have gone' they're much more accurate now and and that flow hospital flow is, is, a, is a far bigger concern. but the um, undoubtedly some of the of, of what you see I would also see as a huge pressure. That it it can be extremely distressing. It can be uh, really some of some of the the sort of injuries and situations that you're faced with are, are the sort of stuff that I, I think people don't even describe at home. They, they don't go home and say what was work was like because actually it's painful and difficult and a situation that even a, a lot of doctors and other healthcare staff will never have experienced and we need to perhaps take very good care of our staff because of what they are ending up being exposed to and and perhaps there's there's a degree of of well you're resilient you chose to work here do you need to just get on with it because it's always it's always like this but but actually some of these are, there are perfectly normal reactions to be shocked or afraid or very sad and distressed. And, and do we actually talk to people, allow people a safe space to say, I didn't really like that shift today?
0: Do you mind if I finish with one last question? And I ask everyone who I interview this question, it's just my typical way to finish, if you don't mind. So if you could go back in time and speak to your junior self just starting out and all the experience that you've had, both clinically and in, at, at government level, what piece of advice would you give them starting their career? So I would talk to them about seizing
1: every opportunity that's possible. I think the information we get from our patients is fascinating. There, there is no job like it for being able to find out about people and and to take a real interest in them as a person, if that's possible and appropriate. It won't always be in emergency situations, but you will always have a chance to speak to them and their families. And really, that thought of being offered something else, something different, and seizing that, whether that be something different that's to do with, with work or whether that's something different to do with something outside uh, of the NHS. But, but don't think that the only job you can do is the one that you started off with.
0: Dr Catherine Caldwell, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know you're running from meeting to meeting um, here in Edinburgh, so I can't thank you enough for giving us so much of your time. Um, I thought it was worth mentioning, I know that you have a conference on realistic medicine, so anyone who's enjoyed this podcast, can you tell us when that is um, for people who might like to get a bit more of this? So I'm really excited about that
1: conference. It's got a fantastic international lineup of speakers who are really passionate about realistic medicine principles. It's on the 9th of October in dunblane and it's free to register, free to attend and it's open on the internet at the moment or through Twitter our
0: realistic medicine conference. And we'll put a link to all of that in our show notes if, if you're interested. sounds absolutely fantastic. Any last little thing you'd like to mention as well as that before we before we leave? Well, we're interested at the moment to get people's
1: views of shared decision-making processes and all of the principles that realistic medicine embodies by asking them to send us little video clips, maybe a couple of minutes long, can be done on a mobile phone, either with a patient or just with a colleague, talking through experiences, maybe good experiences of shared decision-making or maybe less good, maybe... Good outcome, bad outcome, where somebody wished that they'd done something differently or had different knowledge. We really want to explore with healthcare professionals and the public what that shared decision making has meant to them over their own experience. And so that we can use those experiences to improve for others.
0: Dr. Calderwood, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. So many many thanks to Dr Calderwood for that explanation of realistic medicine and this was a really uh, inspiring document that she wrote and, and the purpose of it was really to encourage reflection uh, of our practice you know to inspire and support us to practice a more realistic type of medicine and also to stimulate conversation and Dr Calderwood did specifically say at the end of our of our meeting to try to encourage you the listener to get involved and even to leave Some uh, comments on our show notes page, and they're happy to answer questions. I think my main take home points from today are just a few little things I picked out from that conversation, and and those include number one, trying to find out a little bit more about our patients and what they want from their treatment when it is practical to ask that question. Number two, do you know what your families would wish uh, in the event of sudden ill health? Number three, Consider doing for the patient what we would want for ourselves or for our family members. Number four, recognising that stress leads to conservative management decisions, so look after each other and get to know your colleagues personally. Number five, always identify where waste could be reduced in your work. And number six, encourage staff to be innovative in tackling problems faced in healthcare. So don't forget the Realistic Medicine Conference on October the 9th. Uh, Tickets are selling out fast and it's likely to sell out. So you probably best get in quick. And we've put all the information you require in our show notes. Dr Calderwood has also made a call for people to send video clips talking about their experiences of shared decision making. And we've also put the links to that campaign uh, and how you can submit the videos for that. And also don't forget our sepsis symposium which is promising to be an incredible event and that's on September the 27th in Glasgow and again all relevant information is in the show notes. So many many thanks again to Dr Calderwood, many thanks to you for listening and take care.